the impetus behind creating Blend Ed was just to support college professors in designing better course experiences online. And so, you know, I wanted to, to create some force of change. And I saw the pandemic as the opportunity to have that force of change, right? I was like, oh, the whole world is upside down. If there was ever a time that educators would be willing to work with, you know, a non-educator technologist is now because they need all the help they can get. And I was right about that. Uh, the part I wasn't so right about and we'll get into was just, you know, was it a problem that would outlive the pandemic? And, uh, and you know, the short story on that is it wasn't. And then, you know, there was also like, is there a way to pivot this into something else? Can we move to a different market? Can we go and build the same product for K-12 corporate learning? And, and ultimately, you know, made the decision we were going to find something entirely new. And that's sort of what ended up leading us to through. Welcome to The Value of One, The Power of All, a podcast created by the Ron Brown Scholar Program. Since 1996, this organization has been investing in the next generation of African-American leaders. And this podcast highlights the stories of the scholars, alumni, staff, and friends that make this program special. Hey everyone, this is Ray Pryor, 2015 Ron Brown Scholar, and in this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with David Boone, Ron Brown Scholar from the class of 2012. From his time at Harvard studying computer science and being a software engineer at Microsoft, to founding two companies, BlendEd and Through, you can't really understand and appreciate how David sees the world without knowing where and how he grew up. Born and raised on the east side of Cleveland, life wasn't easy for David. While he was able to overcome those challenges, most of his peers were not so fortunate. So he decided to create the pipelines they needed himself. After taking off during the COVID-19 pandemic, David made the hard decision to let the sun set on BlendEd a lot earlier than he thought it would. Now he's taking all the hard lessons he learned from that experience to build through a platform for young adults who don't fit in the traditional post-secondary pathways so they can launch their careers in the trades. Take a listen to our conversation. I grew up on the east side of Cleveland. Anybody that's from Cleveland or familiar with Cleveland knows uh, that to mean that I grew up on the black side of Cleveland because we are a pretty segregated city, even still today, unfortunately. But grew up raised by my mom. She she had five kids. I am the second eldest of our family. So, uh, and the oldest boy, which kind of made me the proverbial man of the house uh, in a single mother household, right? And so really lived in most of the major housing projects in Cleveland at one point or another. Went to the public school system all the way through K through 12. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the, these kind of uh, highlight moments when things kind of shift, the pivotal moments of things. I think for me, that pivotal moment was probably uh, third grade, third or fourth grade. Uh, I was, I, I had some health issues when I was younger. And so I spent time um, in and out of the hospital. And, you know, luckily a lot of those health issues have resolved as I've gotten older. But because of that, you know, a lot of my report cards and uh, test scores and things of that nature that would normally go home with me from school, they'd end up in the nurse's office until I came back from my latest hospital visit. And so, you know, my, it had to be fourth grade. My school nurse at the time was this older black woman. Her name is Mary Solomon. 
she's still kind of my grandmother to this day in a lot of ways. She got hold of my fourth grade achievement test scores. And she was so puzzled because I was scoring so well, but she knew because she gets all of my mail effectively that I had spent very little time in the classroom, right? And because I, you know, spent so much time in the hospital. And she sort of, uh, based on that, took an interest in me and sort of just, you know, mentoring and, and you know, investing a lot of time and energy to me. And, and the one thing that she did is that she took me out to her house, which is in a much nicer neighborhood, still on the east side, but in an area called Cleveland Heights. And to get there from my middle school, you had to go through a neighborhood, which is kind of like a famous all-American quintessential suburb called Shaker Heights. And in Shaker Heights, there are all these massive old houses, these really big trees. Uh, you know, you got the tire swing in the front yard, the two two dogs, two and a half kids, you know, uh, that, that whole, you know, thing uh, going on. And, and funny enough, it was like maybe less than three quarters of a mile from my first door. And I had never been there. I'd never seen it. And as I was riding through there, I remember it feeling like I had entered the gates of Narnia. Like it was like this whole new world. And I was asking all these questions like, what do they do? And how do they make their money? And just realizing that there was another way to live. And it wasn't so far away. Right? It was like right at my front door. And, and I just remember, I, I can remember like the neurons firing. Like I can remember the, the feeling in my brain as it expanded in that moment. And it's one of those moments I'll never forget. And it all came from someone who was a single mom who had took care of her boys, sent both of them to Ivy League schools. And they were off already grown, having their own families uh, who just decided like, hey, I'll, I'll invest in another young black boy and, uh, and inspire them to perhaps think otherwise about their circumstances and what they're capable of. Man, that's, that's powerful, man. The, you had. Miss Solomon to to take you to on the other side of the tracks and and see what life can be like for you. And I know Absolutely. that uh, I know just the last time we talked uh, and just in what I remember about your story, you had the opportunity to go to a a, a pretty interesting high school uh, in terms of the, the types of things you were exposed to, and and I imagine maybe she was a part of encouraging you to go, or maybe um, carving she was your path there. Yeah. The reason that I went to that high school, 100%. I realized that one of the things that has been a part of my good fortune, you can look at so many parts of my life and look at me as disfortunate, right? But part of my good fortune is the right people have always come into my life at the right time. And I've, I've always been willing to receive that assistance and that help. Miss um, Solomon, I saved that same school from fourth grade to eighth grade. And over the course of that time, she saw me go through high achieving modes and low achieving modes and, and everything in between. I'd say I was a pretty average student through middle school. And by average, I mean like C plus, low Bs. Um, but they couldn't fail me because I tested better than everyone else. That was something that I always sort of had a good grasp on. I didn't get test anxiety. And so I always performed better on testing than a lot of my peers. And so when it came to, you know, eighth grade, I was very, very bored by the education. I didn't know how to ver verbalize that at the time, but I mostly skipped class, played in the gym or did whatever, or just didn't come to school at all. And Miss um, Solomon, you know, pulled me to the side and said, you know, I heard about this new school that's opening. And 
but I knew, I mean, I was the first class ever, right? They, we were the first ninth grade class and the first 12th grade class, right? You know, I heard about this new school opening and I think it'd be a great fit for you. Her knowing sort of, you know, my aptitude, but also, you know, that I was bored. And um, it was a project-based school. It was year round. So we didn't get a 10 week or 12 week summer vacation. We got three weeks in the summer, but we also got three weeks every season. So it worked out nicely. And it was just a different environment to learn in. And, you know, part of that experience was, you know, being co-located at the Great Lakes Science Center or being co-located at what was uh, then uh, GE's uh, Lightning Industrial Headquarters, right? Being co-located at a college. By the time I graduated from high school, I had two years of college credits. And not like two years of like one or two classes. Like I was taking a full course load. I think my last semester I had 18 credits of actual college credit at Cleveland State. And that was all facilitated by the school that basically said, you know, if you're bored, that's your fault, right? There, there's no end to what we can provide for you in terms of experiences. By the time I graduated, I had internships at GE, Rockwell Automation, Lockheed Martin, places that now that I'm older, I'm like, wow, I had access to these employers that are so difficult to find an opportunity in. And I was having exposure to those environments when I was 16 years old, 15 years old. You know, it all came from Miss Solomon being like, hey, you know, you should fill out this uh, application for this high school that was completely lottery based. So it didn't even matter that my grades were terrible. It just, you know, luck of the draw whether I got in. But my um, high school uh, principal, who also became a pivotal person in my life and experience, he never fails to remind me that on my application, I said I wanted to go to Harvard, but I misspelled it. Uh, because I didn't know how to spell Harvard. I had never even seen a word anywhere. It wasn't like we had signets, you know, hanging around our schools or anything like that. That was a completely unthought idea for a public school uh, kid in Cleveland, Ohio. But, you know, even in ninth grade, I was saying that that was my path. And honestly, that came from that, that experience of riding through Shaker Heights and realizing that all those people were doctors and lawyers and looking, you know, asking a question to my doctor, hey, where'd you go to school? And they told me they went to Harvard. So that's why I decided I was going to Harvard. It wasn't uh, premeditated in any other way. It was just like, that's the only other successful people I've had a real conversation with. Uh, that's where they went to school. So that's where I'm going. And that's a great story. I'm glad your principal reminds you. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a funny and, and real one that without exposure to what places like Harvard are or even seeing it somewhere, how would you know? And, you know, so you, mm-hmm. you heard it. When you're a kid and you thought you knew how to spell it and, and, and but you you set your sights on it very early yeah. which i think is great what was what was the social experience like at a high school i imagine maybe it's a a different model but it sounds like maybe it's a public high school where they had a lottery and so were there was it a diverse student body from kind of all over the city that, that came here did, or did you feel like you met more students like you who were interested in kind of doing school a bit differently yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was a it was, you know, one of the first uh, STEM schools in, in the nation. And, you know, it, it was so interesting that Obama gave us a shout out in the State of the Union address in terms of a school model. You know, it was like there needs to be more schools like MC Square STEM in Cleveland. Right. That was pretty cool. And so, you know, it was it was interesting from a number of different factors. But, you know, I think the most interesting part of it is it was a lottery based public school. 
that was created, you know, by the intersection of public and private partnerships, right? So GE coming to the table with the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, with other research organizations, research organizations like the Gates Foundation, et cetera, to make this experiment that was our school happen. And we knew it was an experiment from the very beginning. Like we knew we were the guinea pigs of this model. And it has some, you know, great things and has some not so great things, but I think the one thing that I have deeply appreciated even more now being outside of school and seeing more how the world works is that it was such a diverse student population. We had a lot of students from all over the city. So we had students from the West and East side. So um, it was probably the first time that I had white people in my class because growing up, I went to all black schools because again, in Cleveland, we're heavily segregated. So the East side really is the side of town that all the black people live on. Um, and you know, maybe that's changed a little bit, but it still feels to be the case even now as an adult observer. And so, you know, it was, it was the first time I was having a diverse student population. It was definitely the first time I had anyone that I knew to be Hispanic in my class. Right. Um, funny enough, like I'm in founding through, uh, my co-founder is one of my classmates from my high school. We took completely different paths after high school and still came together. And we talked about it all the time. Like one of the mottos at the high school was master your own path. So like not all of us wanted to be engineers. Like I got really lucky. Not only did the school format work for me, but it exposed me to a career path that was very, very in line with the way that I looked at the world, the way that I operated as a problem solver. And so, you know, I was really in sync with the model. But some of my peers weren't. They didn't want to be engineers, right? But they just, they liked the school model or or some other reason, right? They liked that they could have an internship while being in school, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, we were all different. Uh, and it was a pretty small school. I mean, every class was 100 students. By the time we got to graduation, I think only 60 of us were left. Um, I think all of us graduated, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, it was it was meant to be an experiment. And can we build a school that takes a radically different approach to learning? And the truth is, you can build one, which is really expensive and hard to sustain inside of a public school system that has a lot of other bureaucracy going on that can get in the way of excellence. But overall, I mean, it was really the right right environment for me where I met a lot of really awesome people. And I mean, we we set some interesting records, even just in terms of achievement scores. You know, we, we had a pretty high rate of passing and graduation tests in ninth grade, which was unheard of at the time. In my graduating class of 58 or 57, there were two of us who got into Ivy League schools in the school district that normally only has one or two students that get into Ivy League schools. You know, so there was really a lot of great uh, outcomes uh, from from being in a different environment to learn. And from your experience in as a young kid, you know, managing your, your health challenges, going in and out of the hospital and being bored in middle school and then getting this high school experience, I can see a few of the seeds that, that lead you to what you've been doing now is rethinking how we can do education, rethinking how we can plug people into the opportunity. Uh, so I, I, it's no surprise that I think you, you're, you're here where you are, that a lot of this is, took root, sounds like when you were a kid, a long time ago. I mean, I, and I know we'll, we'll get there. And in your story, what was your experience like at Harvard as an undergrad? Because I imagine, you know, you have this high school experience that, that I'm sure after really bored middle school blows your mind of all the things you get exposed to. You're already basically a junior in terms of credits, right? <laughs> and, and you yeah. have access to all of these companies that 
you're now sitting next to classmates who also could have access to to those great opportunities. But obviously, not a lot of them look like you, and 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 right. some of them uh, had some access to some of the things that maybe your school did. A lot of them mm-hmm. still probably can't relate to your story and your background. And so, what was what was that experience like? Taking what you got from MC Squared and then going to to the place you always said you wanted to go since since eighth grade. Yeah. Oh man. It's a, it it was, it was a big shock to the system. I I applied to more schools than, than I probably should have based on just the anxiety of not being sure that I would get into any. And then if I got into them, being afraid of my ability to afford attending one of those institutions. And so it really was a, um, it, it, it was, it was different than what I had in my mind. I think when you have spent a considerable amount of time idolizing a place, one of the negatives of that is you, you know, maybe over exaggerate, right? You may, you know, create some pedestal for for that institution. And so, you know, in a lot of ways it was different than expected. And some of that was positive and some not so much. I think for me, going into college, one of the things I struggled with was I really, I didn't have a really concrete plan beyond that. I mean, I was just so focused on that goal. I struggled with the now what question when I was there. I kind of just started to gravitate towards what would be considered the default path. And it never really felt right to me. And what I mean by that is, you know, I knew I wanted to study engineering. So I went to the engineering school. Uh, When I first started, I was electrical engineering, computer science major. And I was going okay, but I, I hated the physics classes for electrical engineering. It wasn't that I wasn't performing in them, my grades were fine, but I just, I would literally fall asleep in a book. And uh, someone who enjoys learning, that was really hard for me <laughs> to be, to kind of come to terms with like, oh, maybe this isn't actually what I want to study, even though it feels like what I want to do. And so, you know, I, I fortunately found a computer science and I found it out, enjoyed that a lot and was able to find an internship that freshman year summer at Microsoft in that space. And, you know, ultimately that kind of led me to being just a computer science major and not trying to do the double up, which was, you know, you know, a little bit of an identity crisis around ambition. Where I was like, am I being ambitious enough? And, uh, but in the other side of that, you know, the double-edged sword of having the opportunity to work at a place like Microsoft, I realized that, um, you know, my curriculum wasn't really preparing me sharply for that opportunity. Got to the point where I told people my internships are the classes that I get paid for and they're the classes that are going to get me paid, right? Internships are the thing, are the places where I'm going to learn the most valuable skills. And the courses are just keeping me busy for the year until my next internship, right? It was one of those situations where it was, to me, very clear that there just wasn't a good alignment between industry and the curriculum. And so, you know, it got to a point where, and I remember talking to Vanessa and Mike about this, you know, I was just like, I don't get why I'm here anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know why I keep putting myself through kind of the, the social turmoil of Harvard, which um, we can talk a little bit more about. And just in terms of, you know, being a low income student uh, from a minority background and uh, what some people call, you know, a predominantly white institution. The thing about Harvard for me that was hard to navigate was it was a predominantly wealthy institution. Uh, So many of my classmates, and I shouldn't even just say wealthy, there was a crazy extreme wealth, but then there was also just 
you know, wealth in the form of a lot of financial comfort. And I was still in the phase of having to send money home to help out with things, right? And so there was just like a lot of social dynamics that I had to learn how to navigate that I wasn't familiar with, right? Because even though I had a diverse high school experience, uh, Cleveland is still 100% free and reduced lunch, right? There wasn't that much class difference, even though there was, you know, ethnic diverse uh, differences amongst our student population. And so, you know, it was the first time I think I was having to deal with class, social class dynamics. And so I was like, you know, this is a, you know, kind of hard space to navigate, not a space I'm enjoying navigating. And I don't see the value of it because I'm pretty sure I could get a job at Microsoft, Google, Facebook tomorrow with the skills that I have and the network that I've developed. So do I still need this piece of paper? I remember struggling with that pretty heavily, so much so that I took a semester off. I worked full time to try and make a decision. And honestly, Ray, the only reason I ended up going back is because of a very like sobering conversation I had with my mother where she said, you know, Bubba, that's what everybody in my family calls me. Bubba, you have wanted this for so long and I get it that it's not everything you wanted it to be, but you're so close to getting something that you've worked so hard for. Just finish it. Right. I had a you know, year left in my curriculum. And so I just decided, oh, I'll finish it on my own terms. So when I returned to Harvard, I petitioned to live off campus because everyone lives on campus. So you have to petition to live off campus. They allowed for that to happen. And then I had sort of an extra semester required by their seat hour requirements or whatever the case may be that I had to take. And so I took that extra semester as a semester abroad. So I walked with my class on the day that everybody else who started with me walked. But then I didn't actually complete my courses until six months later, but I completed those courses in Spain. And those were my conditions, right? I was going to take myself out of the environment that wasn't conducive to like my most happy self. And I was going to make the most out of, you know, out of it and and get what I came there for, which ultimately was like to be able to say that like, yo, this kid from the hood, he can do it. He can cut it with the rest of these folks without becoming them too, right? I think that was something I really struggled with. It's like this, you know, nature of, I am still who I am. Like I'm still the man I was when I came here, even though this experience is teaching me new things, it doesn't have to be a 360 deal where I change everything about me. I can still be true to some of the parts of myself that I just feel should be untouched by this Harvard experience. And it's powerful that you, you knew, you knew, the gravity and your mom, you know, sharing this with you, the gravity of what it means to be there and to, to finish and to graduate. But you also have the strong enough sense of self to know that you're going to do it on your own terms. And, and that when you do come back, this is what it's going to look like. What was Spain like? Were, were you taking the, the same engineering classes that you would have been taking in Cambridge or were you able to take other things? And obviously... Spain is Spain, so you know you, you get to experience everything else in another country. What what was that semester? Yeah, um, I mean, I had already finished all of my engineering curriculum by the time I had taken time off, more or less. I think I had a few classes left, so you know, I I very heavily front loaded my engineering curriculum. So when I was finishing, this is something I wish I had done differently, honestly, about Harvard, because I think it was my final semester at Harvard. I was taking one or two philosophy classes. And loved it. And if I had taken those like requirements earlier on in my experience, 
maybe I wouldn't have gotten a minor in anything, but I would have taken more of the classes. And at Harvard is called ethical reasoning or something like that. Right. But I sort of stumbled upon that, you know, and in sort of like, you know, the, the final hours of my degree. But, you know, because I finished all my engineering classes, when I got to Spain, I was just taking language classes. So it was really, you know, an immersion experience. I had studied Mandarin Chinese, uh, both in high school and at Harvard. So I had zero experience with the Spanish language. And I was living in a house with a woman who didn't speak any English. <laughs> so by sort of force, I had to learn enough to communicate with her. Um, and then I was taking the classes. And then I was in Granada, which is not one of the most major cities. And so the neighborhood I was in called El Abbasin is, uh, you know, not not the most touristy center, central part of town. And so even to order, you know, a beer, uh, I had to learn how to speak and, you know, tell them my allergies or whatever the case may be. And so it's really a, a, an immersion experience that I got to participate in. And uh, not to mention, you know, Europe is small relative to the U.S. in terms of geographic size. Right. And so while being in Spain, I got to visit other parts of Europe. You know, I got to go to France, the U.K., uh, Portugal, even getting down as far as Morocco. So getting to touch the continent for the first time. That was just like an awesome experience, man. One, one of those experiences I'll never forget. And, uh, and you know, I get to share with like my nieces and nephews, like, you know, push my sister to, to get her passport before she graduated high school. And she got it in just enough time that her school was, you know, having a trip to Paris, right? So she got to go to Paris before she graduated high school. I was like, sis, I didn't get to do that. And so I made my own money. This is, you know, these experiences I get to share and just kind of impart on what's sort of like the next generation of my family about how you can learn so much from different cultures uh, just by sitting and watching and observing how folks interact with the world. Because in Spain, it's a very different pace of life. They slow a lot of things down. In fact, if you expect things to be on time, you are only asking to be disappointed. Uh, they have this phrase that they use for everything. No pasa nada. It's almost like Hakuna Matata, right? Means no worries. It's just like don't don't think about anything crazy. Eat your grubs, have a good time. And uh and you know, I kind of got to embrace that for a period, uh, which I think was really healthy coming out of a pretty intense degree, a pretty intense, you know, job search and, and sort of like professional development track to just sort of go to some place where no one was asking me about any of that. Uh, the conversation was way more about what I like to do myself and, you know, foods we liked and places we wanted to visit, et cetera. Just very, very different pace and ultimately a, a really good experience for me. Yeah, I can imagine that being kind of a revival for you to step away from the intensity of Harvard life, working life right before you come back and then mm -hmm. get to just exist a little bit in a different space. And, and exactly. I think. I think that, you know, I, I think education for me is, is been nothing has been more impactful than educational opportunities that I've had. But travel is very, very close second, if not past it a little bit. I, I think I think it's great that you've got all the younger folks in your family getting their passports, spotting places on the map that they want to visit, seeking out opportunities to go because it just expands your world literally to the world like it's so much bigger than just the east side exactly. of cleveland you know exactly uh, but you won't you don't know that until you see it sometimes exactly you know? and so. it's funny i was just uh, i had breakfast this morning with 
my oldest nephew, who is 15, going on 16 in January, and my uh, younger sister, who's 19. And she's the one, she's done a little bit of traveling, even for her age. And, uh, and, and I was talking to my nephew, he was talking about wanting to go to Paris for his 18th birthday. And I was like, well, brother, get saving, right? That's a goal, make it happen. But then I also saw times like, you know, people don't understand just how lucky we are to live in the U.S. If for no other reason than the vast amount of cultural and geographic diversity you can experience in the U.S. alone. Right. I mean, you know, the, the Rockies is one of the largest mountain ranges. Right. In, in the world. Right. The most fascinating mountain ranges in the world. We have access to that. Right. We have major cities along along the Rockies, which is which is, you know, kind of interesting to be able to go to a city that's a mile above uh, sea level. Right. Um, you know, there, there's all of these things that you can, you know, experience just in this country, just in a road trip. Right. Uh, the national parks, et cetera. And, and be surprised by how different things can be from a way of life. I remember taking a cross-country road trip and being in a town where there was no cell reception whatsoever, which was okay until you realize also, like, <laughs> there was only, like, one payphone in the whole town. <laughs> and so, you know, everyone there had to have a landline in their house. And it's like, I mean, I remember having a landline when I was a kid, but just like to go back into a point in time where that's the only option was was like an experience, right? There was no internet in this town, nothing. It was very off the grid and, and that's available to you right here in this country. So I encourage people like even beyond like, oh, go out into the world, right? The world is could be a two hour drive from where you are right now. Uh, and all you have to do is hop in the car. A whole new world was sitting right in the in Shaker Heights for you. You know, right. You know, Miss Allen took you there. Yeah, man, that's that's yeah. a that's a powerful message for sure. We don't have to go far. Man, jumping jumping back into your story, um, I know you after graduating, go to Microsoft, working across a variety of different projects, utilizing your your engineering and, and technical expertise. I'm I'm curious to hear about that, but I'm also curious to know, you know, everything about your educational experience to date is a bit non traditional. It's a bit different it is you know even your harvard experience is different than the than the typical and i'm i'm just watching i'm, I'm as i'm listening to you I'm, I'm watching you interrogate how learning is done how education systems are set up from the time of your kid all the way up in time to graduate and so i'm curious about when the lens on foundation of what blended and through end up being when does that kind of click for you when does when does an opportunity in that space or opportunity to have an impact there when, when do you start seeing that is it sometime in at microsoft in seattle or is it, is it sometime after that yeah you know it, that's a great question I, i'll say this you know i went to microsoft very bright-eyed and, and bushy-tailed so to speak just in terms of what i could accomplish there i think you know, and I'm so grateful to have had the experiences that I did with Microsoft. But I, you know, I got exposed pretty early on into my college career to just how lucrative a career in tech can be uh, working at a big tech firm, right? And so, you know, it was really one of those things where I was making more money than I expected to make for an engineer very, very young. And I was making more than I thought I'd make being in a game 10 or 15 years. And, uh, and that was really cool, but it also, it was the first time I was like, man, this isn't everything, right? Uh, 
you know, one of the downsides of working in big tech is it can oftentimes be hard to see the impact of your work. And and I think for me, I was struggling with that. And I think a lot of millennials, I mean, I think it's part of our uh, generational curse of sorts, right? We we want to find our passion in our work, and we're always seeking that. And uh, and I have some you know new thoughts around that now that I've sort of made my passion in my work. But you know, I really every day there felt like the walls were closing in on me in some way because I just felt more and more constrained and confined in terms of what I could do to make the world a better place. And uh, and so you know. I tried the whole entrepreneurship, right? Creating products and teams inside of an organization that has abundant resources and realize that the, you know, political landscape of a big organization has way more factors than I wanted to navigate in addition to the political landscape of a country, right? You kind of have your own micro country and and an employer that has over, I don't know, 150,000 employees. And so, you know, all of that to say, I, you know, the whole time I was at Microsoft, I was experimenting with ideas. Uh, you know, I started a little consultancy for data. Um, when I was an intern, I had a couple of different like companies I started with classmates or that I was working on through the Harvard Innovation Lab. Uh, and so, you know, I was always sort of toying with the idea of being an entrepreneur. And, and honestly, I had the goal of being an entrepreneur before I had the goal of going to Harvard. Uh, I used to tell folks that own a dry cleaner or something, whatever it is, I'm going to own it. Uh, I used to say that when I was relatively young. And so, you know, to have that sort of being the backdrop of how I looked at the world, how I looked at myself, and then to go into the working world and to face, you know, the challenges of trying to do that within a larger organization, I was always identifying problems. And a lot of the problems that I really cared about had to do with, you know, what were the major pivotal changing moments for me and how do you inspire those sorts of moments in the life lives of the masses the lives of the folks who for one reason or another don't have a miss solomon or jeff mcclellan to step in and sort of provide the context and the experience that ultimately triggers that new idea that new motion that new pathway one of the things that ultimately drove me to start blend dead was just taking an honest assessment of how the world works and going back to that day of, you know, getting all of the college acceptances and having to make a decision and sitting there and thinking like, wow, what if I didn't have Ivy League institutions to choose from? What would that experience have looked like? And then going back and thinking about my peers, right, the people that I grew up with, the people that I know are brilliant, right, that, uh, that were in that situation, didn't have, you know, high ticket uh, educational opportunities. Not to mean that they didn't have great educational opportunities, but for the most part, none of us knew how to measure what was going to be a great educational opportunity versus not great. Uh, We we didn't have the right data or the right questions to ask to even get that data um, about the institutions we were going into. And just recalling that so many of my friends had dropped out because they were in environments where ultimately they were not set up to succeed in learning, Uh, you know, from factors of underpaid adjuncts being the primary teachers or underpaid grad students being the primary teachers uh, or to, you know, just a simple matter of fact that like teaching isn't always the most important thing to a university. Realizing I had the great privilege that for the most part, I had great learning experiences inside of my classes, right? There were very few classes that I feel were truly poorly designed at Harvard. There were some that could have been better, <laughs> but in terms of having really well-designed courses, 
I always felt like there was something to learn from the courses I was taking and, and just recalling that so many of my friends weren't so fortunate. The impetus behind creating Blend Ed, which was a platform to help college professors to move their in-person courses to online during the pandemic, was just to support college professors in designing better course experiences online, right? So that they weren't taking their same bad course experiences and moving them into a format that would make them even worse, right? And that was sort of like the impetus. But, you know, the re- the why was just simply that I figured the least resource professors were the ones that were going to need my tool most. And the least resource were the ones that were underpaid adjuncts or underpaid graduate students that were teaching the folks that I grew up with, right? The folks who, when they fail a class, they take it to heart to mean that they're not capable, even though they may have been set up to fail, (laughs) even though the the chances of success were low just by design. And so, you know, I wanted to, to, create some force of change. And I saw the pandemic as the opportunity to have that force of change, right? I was like, oh, the whole world is upside down. If there was ever a time that educators would be willing to work with, you know, a non-educator technologist, it's not because they need all the help they can get. And I was right about that. Uh, the part I wasn't so right about and we'll get into was just, you know, was it a problem that would outlive the pandemic? And, uh, and you know, the short story on that is it wasn't. Right. It was a pandemic problem. Once folks could go back to the classroom, they, you know, um, you know, blew the dust off of their old syllabus and, and course notes. And they got back to doing what they had been doing for the last 15 years, unfortunately, for the learner. But, you know, ultimately that that was sort of like, you know, the reason why I made that that jump into that space was I'd always sort of wanted to do something to help change the way that a lot of my peers felt about college. And I figured if I can improve the learning environments that they were being sent into, then, you know, even if it was incremental um, on the scale of which this was happening, it would be a huge change for the world. Uh, and I think we were a little successful, but I wish we had been more successful in that endeavor for sure. And I appreciated the, pain, the picture that you painted of the implications of poorly designed classes, underpaid adjuncts, underpaid grad students. You know, when, when, when we're at school, you know, you and I in undergrad and we're thinking about uh, what we're going to give this rate my professor one star on, you know, at the end of the class or this, this was not done well or this was bad. That's one thing. But when you take this through all of my friends, like you were talking about, and take this to the vast majority of people who are going to college for whom a poor classroom or instructional design is is existential like that. That's the reason that they get their degree or not. That's the reason that they come back to the next semester or not. And we already know the implications of those outcomes for people who aren't able to to find to persist. Uh, yeah, to persist yeah. through. And yeah. and that that the work that you are doing is is really for like you said the people that you were thinking about that that didn't that that were just as brilliant as you were but had vastly different experiences than you did um, when, when you were on a college campus. So. And I, I, I see now even more clearly, and I've always known about your work. I see now the implication of how how big Blend Ed's the, the the issue that Blend Ed was trying to tackle was. And like you said, the the problem didn't stop at the pen, you know, at the end of the pandemic. It's still here, but perhaps the uh, the, the willingness, willingness to embrace <laughs> yeah. these kinds of solutions, you know, the temperature in the room changed. So, man, drastically. We're, we're, before we, we talk about the change, 
let's let's go back to you know you you, you want to do blended whatever that looks like at the time and what steps did you take to do that from uh, from Microsoft to kind of officially launching in the middle of the pandemic um, mm-hmm. doing this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of a wild story. Um, I, I had one last hurrah at Microsoft where I joined a sort of entrepreneurial team um, with a very clear mission. We wanted to teach the world how to code, and uh, and and our sort of philosophical difference and what were the solutions that were out there was that there was already more than enough content in the world to teach everyone what folks needed was a guidance counselor they needed a gps right someone who sort of helped them to navigate all of the content that was available to them and so we built this platform that where you took a pre-assessment and that pre-assessment then was used to create an adaptive learning plan based on all of the content that was available and linkedin learning and a couple other sites that either we had contracted or Microsoft owned, and uh, and it was a it was a very interesting idea um, that we were able to to get out into the world, and in about six months grew it to one hundred and fifty thousand learners. But for political reasons that I don't fully understand even today, that whole team was dissolved, and uh, and some folks were laid off, and. I was put onto a project that I just felt like they were begging me to quit. I got feel like it was they they put me in a corner that they knew I wasn't going to be happy in, and uh, and you know that was probably I don't know a few months before bonuses were were due. Maybe it was a month and a half before bonuses were due, and, and I just camped out till my bonus showed up. I mean, I, I I just I knew that that was it, and and the reason that it was it was that. I was doing work that I knew could make a big difference. I mean, in doing that work, you know, I met a young man who was from Kenya and he was literally traveling from village to village with three laptops in his backpack to give young people access to our curriculum so that they could learn how to code. And that, I mean, you know, talk about inspiring, but also just like the reach of something, right? It was like, you know, Microsoft could do something that's on a global scale without batting that. So magical, so, so, you know, inspiring at the same time. So discouraging when reasons that weren't the impact, you know, led to the demise of that project. And so, you know, that sort of like kind of if I wasn't already, you know, antsy and trying to get out of there, that sort of like lit the flame and I was ready to bounce. And again, I always will say I'm so grateful for my experiences at Microsoft. And like, I won't say that I'll never go back to a place like that, because honestly, I learned so much tremendously. I said it was the only class that really mattered um, when I look back on it. But ultimately, like that sort of like gave me the push and it pushed me to go and join a startup for a little while. And then in having that experience, I, I gained the confidence to say, OK, I can do this. And, and so, you know, I spent seven months at a startup um, based out in Seattle. And over the course of that seven months, the whole world went upside down, right? You know, I had some some stuff happen in my family that brought me back to Cleveland. And, and a month later, everyone was working from home because the pandemic uh, sort of hit. And probably like three or four months after that, um, I ultimately made the decision to to leave that employer and, and to found Blend Ed. And the, the, you know, discussions that led up to that was honestly just helping a bunch of educators as they were trying to navigate the uncertainty of like what their tomorrow would look like and realizing that there was, you know, definitely an opportunity to, to build solutions there. Didn't have a clear vision for what that solution would be, um, but just started, you know, 
interacting with the space, right? Engaging school districts and professors and all the educators in my network to say, hey, I have two hands and a strong technical aptitude. How can I be of service? And uh, and that turned into building, you know, what ultimately became, you know, our instructional design management platform uh, that was Blended. But yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those things where the first steps was just getting to work. And then, you know, after that, we went out, we asked for advice. And every time I asked someone for advice, they offered to write me a check, which was great. Um, so we were able to raise a small friends and family just from, you know, speaking of Microsoft, some of the mentors that I had at Microsoft, some of the mentors I had at Harvard or, you know, outside of Harvard, but in that same time period. And uh, and ultimately, you know, led to us saying, hey, we can build a venture back software company uh, off of this. So how how big was at, at Blended's peak? How how many people were involved on, on the team that you were leading? Yeah, I mean, at our peak, we were a team of twelve, with engineers uh, in two countries. Um, so we we had folks in the U.S. and folks in Argentina, and we had uh, marketing and, and graphic design in Europe. Um, so yeah, we we had a pretty pretty sizable team. And, you know, it was pandemic times, which is one of the magical things about the pandemic was since everyone was working from home, your dating pool for for talent increased dramatically. Right. It wasn't there was no uh, you'll need to travel from Argentina once a quarter to be in an office or anything like that. So it actually made finding really great talent in a lot of ways easier. Um, not that it was even significantly cheaper. I think people have the wrong impression when someone says they're building an international team. Uh, my my team was still pretty expensive, honestly, but it was a team that was dedicated to the work, uh, and uh, and I was able to find them just through social networks and and otherwise. But yeah, at our peak, it was it was twelve of us worldwide. I know you had mentioned earlier that you know Harvard is this place that you aspire for, and. In some ways, it's maybe even better than you thought it was. In other ways, it didn't live up to exactly what you thought. And maybe Microsoft was similar. The, the opportunity to really, with a snap of a few fingers, be able to reach students in Cleveland and Kenya instantly with this tool. And in other ways, fall short of what you, what the potential that you see uh, you being able to have there. I heard a lot of scholars talk about that building a company has a little bit of that too. That, that being an entrepreneur and being a founder is something that, like you, something that they've always kind of been in their DNA, always been a, a way of viewing the world that they've had even since they were a kid. And, and maybe founding a company is something they always wanted to do. But there are a lot of harsh realities that come with that. And I mean, you, you built a team, an international team at that. You raised money. You, you went out and found a uh, you know, all of your, your customers in pretty short time, because everything's moving pretty fast in the, in, in yeah. terms of when you start and the pandemic's already here. So it's not like you got years to develop a product or got years to R&D or anything like that. You got to put yeah. something out there. What was, tell me about how the experience of being a building blended was compared to what you thought it would be like to, to do something like this. Yeah, no, that, that is a, it's a very real question because you're right. It's one of those things that, you know, it's very easy to idolize um, the founder's story, right? You you watch the social network. You see how Mark Zuckerberg got started in his dorm room. 
and turned it into this multi-billion dollar opportunity. You know, you read the story of Google and how they got started in their dorm room, you know, building an indexing function that turns into uh, what is now, you know, the most profitable internet property in history. <laughs> um, definitely the most visited, right? Uh, you know, you, you read a story of, of Bill uh, getting started or Apple getting started in a garage or, you know, you, you, it's so, so easy to read those stories, um, and to, uh, over idolize, right. Or just like, you know, and oh, have too much optimism around what the real story is. Um, and that's just, you know, if you don't sell a movie, you got to sensationalize, right? If you don't sell a book, you got to, you know, make it feel and sound good, right? So there, there's reasons why that happens. Um, when you get into the real nitty gritty of it, that romanticized vision of how things uh, are going to play out turns out to be just, you know, one side of the equation. Uh, you can keep that romance up like any other romance, right? You can, you can keep it alive. Uh, but it, it, it requires some work because there are a lot of hard nights, days, weeks, days that turn into weeks, right, <laughs> um, that you have to go through in order to build a company, especially when you are, you know, taking outside money in order to do it. So uh, as I really got into this space, I think one of the things I was most naive about is, you know, just how much. I would need to learn and evolve and how quickly I would need to do that and the sacrifices that will be made in order to make that possible over the course of two and a half years. Now it'll be, you know, three and a half, uh, but you know, over the course of two and a half before I, I decided to shut down, uh, blend Ed, I mean, I, I had gone through a lot of personal relationship changes as a result of just being in a lot of ways unavailable to the people around me. Right. Uh, and, and feeling that was necessary in order to build a, a successful business. Um, again, there are a lot of things you learn after doing it the first time that cutting yourself off from the world doesn't guarantee success. <laughs> it's still a hard thing to do. No matter how many sacrifices you make, is is there's still an ingredient called luck in all of it. Um, and and uh, you never know how things are going to turn. Uh, but I will say, you know, there were some surprising bits just in terms of just how much sweat um, it would take to, to get things to where they were. Even, you know, the idea of raising capital, I, I idolized the idea of raising venture capital because, I mean, I, I went to Harvard where everyone talked about building, you know, these um, unimaginable types of businesses, right? Raising billions of dollars uh, on an idea that they wrote on a napkin, showed to an investor, right? And then you get out into the real world and you realize that that, that napkin idea very rarely gets funded. In fact, very few things ever get funded. And so to, to raise, you know, a million plus in venture, you really have to build a, a story. You have to build a, a solid business plan. And, uh, you know, CS majors don't learn anything about that. <laughs> so you have to then learn all of those skills and uh, learn the language and communicate that to people in a way that they believe in what you're saying, right? Uh, a lot of a lot of hard work went into just developing those skills. You know, a lot of repetition, a lot of failure, a lot of rejection. You know, no one talks about how much you're going to get rejected, 
right? I mean, I, I I don't even go and look at it anymore, but I had a list of all the investors that I sent emails to or, you know, try to get on a phone call or try to get a warm intro to only to either never be, you know, received or to get on the phone with them and, you know, have one of the partners walking their dog in the background after they realized they weren't going to invest or like whatever. The, I mean, the, 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 the number of experiences you, you can have just in a short period of time that challenge your, your identity, um, especially as someone who's an achiever, right, who looks at their um, nature as remarkable and, and, uh, and to be sort of feeling almost as if you're, you know, just another person wasting their time or, or in between them and lunch. Uh, it, it's a tough thing to navigate, but you learn how to do it. You, you know, develop the thick skin and you, you also develop a sixth sense. Because uh, I'll also say that there are certain folks you don't want to collaborate with and work with, uh, no matter how much money they're offering you. And that's something else you have to learn as an entrepreneur. You'll have, you know, some negative experiences that really shape the way you look at the world. And uh, the hope is that it doesn't change you so much that you become so jaded and pessimistic that you, you never take another jab at entrepreneurship again. But that happens for folks. Fortunately, pretty much since day one, this job has felt like the right thing for me to be doing. Uh, I love building things. I love creating, you know, and so uh, entrepreneurship gives me the opportunity to do that. And uh, I couldn't I couldn't imagine another job that would work that well for me. Uh, I tell people it's like, you know, that, that Goldilocks and the Three Bears story, right? So you taste the one pot of porridge and it's too hot. The other one is too cold. And then the, the last one's just right. And that's kind of where, where I am with it. Like, this is just right, you know, this, this seat, this opportunity is where I want to be. And, uh, and I'm gonna keep doing it until, you know, it's, it's no longer enjoyable. It's no longer fun. Uh, but it's certainly the right path. And now that you're thinking about that path, can you take me into when that path shifted the transition, when you sensed the, the sun setting on blend ed and when and how you made the transition to through and, and, and just share a little bit about what through is and, and what you're what you're working on now. Absolutely. Um, so, yes, I mentioned that, you know, I, I built a um, instructional design management platform called Blend Ed that we we're selling to community colleges all over the country. And uh, and that was an experience. And I'll never forget it. It's, I tell people like that was my MBA. Some people go off to Wharton or Harvard and they sit in the classroom. I just rolled up my sleeves and built a business that didn't go anywhere, but well, it went somewhere, but it didn't go where I wanted it to go. Didn't lead to the financial outcomes I wanted it to 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 lead to. Um, but it was probably around this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier, where um, the writing that was on the wall but was a little bit too far away to to make out what it said became abundantly clear, <laughs> uh, and, and that writing was that the market was dissolving underneath us. Um, that every day another another professor was returning to the classroom and thereby returning to their old ways of teaching. And that no matter how much many students we surveyed or news media publications surveyed that um, show that students were demanding and, you know, with a more flexible learning environment where they have more online or blended options, uh, that there was really not a whole lot that anyone could do to force college to change and evolve in that way. Uh, and, and, you know, I spent time with deans, uh, with presidents of colleges, and all of them agreed that it is what students want. 
and they all, you know, were just as defeated as I was in terms of trying to get faculty to understand that need, that desire from the student's perspective. And, uh, and ultimately, I mean, that, that, that sort of, you know, kind of led to a spiral of what now, right? I mean, at, at this time last year, like I said, I was close to about two and a half years into this business. Uh, you know, I think probably close to, if not over a million dollars invested from outside that was just already spent, right? It was already in the product that we had built, et cetera. And it just be sitting there and trying to figure out, you know, what, what do we do from here? You know, having, you know, a potential merger acquisition was, was one option and having to navigate that opportunity and whether that was real or something that we would waste time on, or if it was even something that I would want to do, because a lot of times when a, a product ends up being put on the shelf, um, the acquisition becomes about the talent and it'd really be about acquiring my skills and I'm like, do I want to go and work for this other company that, that was entertaining an acquisition? Uh, you know, there was they just shut it down, return all capital to investors option. I mean, there was, you know, all of these factors that I was having to deal with while at the same time trying to figure out the right way to, you know, communicate all of this to my team. Right. These people that rely on me to feed their families. Uh, and and I, I just remember feeling an immense amount of pressure. And being quite overwhelmed and almost to the point of paralyzation, just like not knowing where to move. Uh, I was I was probably, you know, one stressful activity away from from being just paralyzed by by the amount of stress and the whole mix. And so, you know, I, I had to I had to spend some time meditating, reflecting and really just coming to terms with the fact that it was it was time to let go and that, um, you know, uh, the best path was to fully disclose to all parties involved. I meant investors. I meant employees about where things were, um, and and ultimately the decision. And some of the employees were aware. They were some of the folks who helped me to come to the realization that that it just wasn't going to work. That you know we were getting ghosted by you know late stage deals, right? Folks that that would have bought us a year ago, no problem. weren't weren't going to be paying customers now. And so we, you know, we had a real period of just mourning, honestly, right? Of just like, this is something we've all invested an incredible amount of time and effort into creating. And, uh, and, and it's not going to be the product we want. And then, you know, there was also like, is there a way to pivot this into something else, right? Can we move to a different market? Can we go and build the same product for K-12 corporate learning? Or, and so there was all of these questions to navigate. And ultimately, you know, made the decision we were going to find something entirely new, and um, and and go for that. And that's sort of what ended up leading us to through, right? And so, you know, it's, it's December of, of 2022. I've I've let everyone know that you know, come January, we're we're no we're no more, right? We've effectively um, shut down the business, and, uh, and and then I took some time to kind of reset. You know, I told everyone around me, like, look, I've been dead focused on one thing for the last couple of years. I need to, you know, look up and see how the world has changed in the time that I had my head down in the sand. And uh, so I did some traveling. I spent a lot of time with my family. I took my sister on a college road trip. Right. So we, you know, we, we got to spend time together, which honestly, we had had a hard time spending time together with all I was doing with the business. And so it, it was really a great time. 
But in that, you know, taking my sister on a college road trip, talking to my stepbrother about him deferring college for a year, I just kept coming back to the same people that I really cared about, which was those brilliant peers of mine who never had their light bulb moment, right, in a classroom that never, you know, really, you know, accessed what I think was their max potential. Uh, and they still can, right? Life's long. Uh, so it didn't have to happen. It's not like uh, you today 18 or you never reach it. But I just felt like that was a missed opportunity by all of the you know, systems and infrastructure around young adults in America was that, you know, they pushed them into college. And then when they got to college, they weren't properly supported to achieve their goals. And, and I just got really, really um, reinvigorated around solving that problem. Like how do you help these young people who are oftentimes feeling lost? Uh, to access their maximum potential for that time period and, uh, and and really asking the question of like, I just graduated from high school and specifically, I am not going to college. So now what, right? What does it look like to be in that stage of life and, and coming to terms with the fact that, you know, beyond military service or going to college, there really aren't a lot of pathways with what I call GPS included, that guidance that I was mentioning about the Microsoft product that I built, right? Of just like, of course, there are pathways, but if, if there's no lights along the path, if there's no system that tells you when to go right versus when to go left, then how in the world are you meant to navigate it? As a young person who just a couple months ago had to ask for a hall pass to go and use the restroom, right? How is how are you expected to to know how to find your way in the world so quickly um, when you know high school doesn't prepare you for that? High school prepares you for college. <laughs> it doesn't prepare you to navigate the world. And so, you know, I really, um, by being reinvigorated um, through those experiences, through those conversations, uh, decided that I wanted to build uh, more pathways with GPS included, right? Uh, and, and you know, that's where through came in. And, and honestly, going back to my earlier statements around, you know, I had all these internship experiences in high school, then having the uh, classes I get paid for. It's what I evolved my internships to mean, um, experiences uh, in college. You know, I really came to terms with the fact that like on the job work, like training and, and learning, apprenticeship type of style of learning can be deeply impactful for young people. Um, it can bring all of the context that they need to set their own goals. And, and I wanted to open up more pathways specifically around that around this idea of you can get your education through work, right? Through actually doing the job. Even, you know, the idea of instead of getting an MBA, I started a business. Um, MBA would have been cheaper, but <laughs> I still learned a ton by actually going out and building a business. And I don't have any regrets about that. Um, and so, you know, the idea behind through is just to really kind of connect young people who have made the decision not to go to college or have made the decision to leave college um, with the opportunity that will lead to a life-sustaining waged career. And, and right now we focus specifically on the construction trades, making sure that young people understand the opportunity that's available in the space, in the industry, as well as have the tools and the means that they need to break into that industry and then to succeed in that industry. And, and that's really, you know, all facilitated prior online coaching and pre-apprenticeship model where we recruit young people in a classroom, online, community centers, churches, and we work with them to prepare themselves for job interviews in this industry. 
And once they have a job interview and they succeed and they get the placement, we stay with them as a career coach to help support them in achieving their goals as they navigate uh, the space. And what that really boils down to is, you know, with Blend Ed, I wanted to have this impact on these young people, but I was trying to do it through the classroom, which put at least one person in between what I wanted to accomplish and reaching the person that I wanted to reach. And that was the professor. And the professor made a great partner during the pandemic. But post-pandemic, the professor was not the ideal partner. And, uh, and so, you know, in this new format, I, I get to reach the young person directly. And I get to um, provide to them what folks like Ms. Solomon or McClellan or, you know, any of the other mentors and, and coaches that have come through my life uh, over the years have provided to me. And I get to do it in a way that's a business, right? We make money based on placements. In terms of our relationship with the employer, we're a recruiting company. We help them recruit young people because they all need young people on their workforce and they have a hard time attracting them because they don't know how to speak to them, right? So we help them to find young people. They pay us for that. In return, we get to leverage a small percentage of those resources to help those young people to succeed and uh, and ultimately to keep the business alive, right? To keep keep you know, my team and then everyone fed while doing uh, that life work that really, you know, inspires us and passions us to keep uh, doing a hard thing because it doesn't matter how successful your startup is, startups are just hard. And so uh, at this point, we just, we want something that makes us want to get up and work in the middle of the night if that's what it requires. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Value of One, The Power of All a podcast created by the Ron Brown Scholar Program. If you want to hear more inspiring conversations like this one, don't forget to click subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about the organization, check us out at ronbrown.org.